This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. Good afternoon. I'm here with the winner of the Connecticut NOFA's fifth annual Bill Dusing Organic Living on the Earth Award, Michael Nadeau. Michael Nadeau is one of the leading authorities in the field of sustainable organic and ethical land care strategies in the United States. He is sought after for creating attractive, sustainable, and restorative environments using organic practices that respect the ecology of the property and reflect the philosophy of the client. Michael's organic and sustainable holistic land care approach carefully maximizes wildlife habitat with specific plantings and techniques, improving the overall health of land, water, and wildlife. He is co-founder of Connecticut NOFA's Organic Land Care Program and has a organic land care consulting business. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I've been we've been trying to put this together for some time. Finally happened. A couple of years. Yeah. Congratulations on the Deucing Award. What did you think about it? Oh my goodness. What what a what an honor. Um I meant to say so many things when I was up there, but I got choked up as soon as I put Bill's hat on. Uh, uh, as you know and others uh know that know me, know that Bill and I were very close friends. And uh, you know, his loss is still very palpable. What I wanted to say was that, you know, there's no way I'm going to fit Bill's shoes. There's just no way I'm going to be able to fit into Bill's shoes. However, I fit into mine when I vow to continue to do what I know he would want me to do. Uh, and it's what I want to do naturally. And that is, um, you know, to aid and abet the ecological restoration of landscapes. Cool. I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that. So, I would imagine at one time you were not an organic, sustainable landscaper <laughs> with all this knowledge. So how long ago was that? And if I'm right, was there any one thing that set you onto the path that led you to where you are today? You have a very vivid and correct imagination. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, when I first started out in landscaping when I was 12 years old, um, I worked for a mow, blow, snow, spray, and go company which is like pretty that. much, yeah, pretty much the basic um, don't think, just work kind of landscape company. And uh, if you had an issue like crabgrass, you went out and bought something that you would apply granularly or liquid. In other words, you read the label, saw the problem and applied the product. Um, so it was very topical. It was very uh, treating the symptom instead of the, the cause, the reason. The biggest reason for crabgrass in, in my 55 years now of doing this, the number one reason for crabgrass is cutting the grass too short. I mean, just raising the mower blade mm -hmm. to three, three and a half inches reduces almost all of the crabgrass because crabgrass needs full sun to germinate. So the lower the, uh, those little bare spots are much more prominent in a short mode turf. The big deal, in the change of the way I did things was um, when I was 17, I was taught uh, the Tao mantra. It was called the Tao mantra back then. And that is better living through chemicals. Still and, around. <laughs> yeah. So I bought that Kool-Aid and drank it. And um, I went down the route and I got my, uh, I was the youngest licensed arborist in the state of Connecticut for a while. I had my arborist license at 17 years old. 
which gave me legal permission to use pesticides. And boy, did I. I took to it readily. And then not long after that, a year or two later, I got my uh, custom ground supervisory license, which gave me even more permission to use even more pesticides, which is the difference between an arborist licenses, spraying things three meters and taller. And the custom grounds is to spray things three meters and shorter, like lawns and shrubs and things. With this newfound knowledge and power, I went uh, pretty mad with it and sought to subdue nature. And something happened along the way where I realized that the reason why I stayed in this business from such a young age all the way through to my retirement and still now is that I'm a nature boy. I just love nature. And I thought I was working to help make my clients' properties look the way they wanted with very little regard for nature. And what I realized I was doing was I was really not working with nature. I was working against her and by trying to dominate. The more I applied synthetic fertilizers and the more I applied um, synthetic pesticides, the more I needed to apply. So things became hooked on it. The landscape became hooked. We affectionately call high maintenance turf that's been maintained conventionally or non-organically, we, um, we call it rugs on drugs. <laughs> it's, you know, you take off the drugs and they go cold turkey and they crash. It's not funny, but it's funny. Yeah, it's, yeah. The main reason for that is the biology of the soil has been totally disregarded and killed mostly um, so that the grass is totally dependent on the syringe applications of life support systems like synthetic fertilizers, like fungicides, like uh, insecticides. And I realized this and I said, how am I going to get the heck out of this? My clients are all used to these emerald green, perfect lawns that I've been touting. So I started to do some experiments without telling them. I went down to Rodale, uh, Pennsylvania and uh, studied with the Rodale people for a month. <clears throat> they were just getting into organic lawns. They were doing, they were big into organic farming and vegetables, but uh, not much into landscape at the time. So I learned a lot about soil biology, which opened my eyes because what I learned earlier in school was that chemistry is what's most important. And that's what we can control. You can control the chemistry, therefore control the plant. And what I found is if you really want to dance with nature, you must dance with the biology. The biology will actually dictate the chemistry in the long run. So um, that's what I did. And by 1982, I had uh, detoxed off the original Kool-Aid and started to get into a different kind of feeling about land care and uh, thinking that for this to be sustainable, and what I mean by sustainable, for this to feel good for me to do this for the rest of my life, I had to change what I was doing, the way I was doing it. So uh, again, the experiment started. Some very smart person, I can't remember who it was, told me that if I wanted to learn about soil health to grab any book that was written before World War II, because that's when the chemicals were first invented and that's when the Green Revolution came about with all the synthetic materials. So I read lots and lots of books about old school soil husbandry and found that a lot of that is... Um, very applicable today to organic thinking. 
As a matter of fact, that was the forerunner to all the organic thinking. Today with um, really good science and lots more what I call genuine practitioners out there doing experiments like, like I used to, we have found ways to use, to work with nature instead of against her and still provide a very uh, beautiful uh, landscape. Mm -hmm. So you came finally to like become one of the authors of the NOFA standards for organic land care. And the I read there's a national problem that there's an organic term terminology for food, but not for landscapes. And that's what you were attempting to rectify. What was the goal there? So the motivation first before the goal was um, <clears throat> I was trying to do organic land care before that was even the phrase was coined. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a whole lot of guidance, but I was trying. And there was a person who was selling organic or natural uh, lawn care. And he was using things like 2,4-D synthetic fertilizer, nothing to do with organic. <laughs> but what he was under the, under the guise that anything that contains a molecule of carbon is considered organic. That's the legal definition. If you look it up in a dictionary, wow. anything that contains a molecule of carbon is considered organic. So mm -hmm. 2,4-D is, is uh, uh, derived from petroleum or oil. And uh, so is the synthetic fertilizers. So he was getting away with this. And I was really upset with that, that there was no legal teeth in um, what we called organic. And back then, the US, before the USDA got into de defining what organic food is, uh, NOFA and MAFCA in Maine um, defined it as um, you know working with soil and working with the natural conditions of the, uh, of the soil and the property. And I thought the same thing could be done with landscaping, but the rules would have to be different because I don't want to grow a foot or two feet of grass like they want to grow the most years of corn per acre. What I want is healthy, sustained growth without chemicals. So I mentioned that to someone by the name of Kim Stoner, which many of us know. And she said, that's a great idea. More people are poisoned on their property than they are by eating tainted food because of all the chemicals that are being used on properties. And not only people, but dogs, and also squirrels and rabbits and deer and everything else that eat the landscape. And she literally grabbed me by the collar one year and said, we're going to start the organic land care program, you and I. And I said, oh, 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 oh okay, <laughs> how do we do this? And she says, we're gonna pull in some key people. And one of the people she wanted to pull in was Bill Dusing. So earlier, Bill was one of my heroes because I used to listen to him on the radio at five minutes before eight on Friday mornings. And I started work at eight o'clock and I had a bunch of employees waiting for me, but I would not go to work without listening to Bill's five minute segment on the radio. When she said Bill Dusing, he was like one of my gurus, one of my, my heroes that I had never met. And she introduced me to Bill and uh, that's how it all got started. Wow. In a nutshell, what, what's the problem with spraying all that stuff besides the obvious ones of canine cancer and your kids play on the lawn and, you know, they're poisoning all the, the animals in your yard? I mean, wait, why well, can't... Are enough. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. I know. I know I'm being obvious, but 
the question I guess is that if you go organic, do you have to give up your emerald green lawn that you were talking about? So it depends on your aesthetic. If you talk about emerald green lawn, just the way you stated it, no, you do not have to give it up. If you want to give up your monocultural single species like bluegrass emerald green lawn, mm -hmm. yes, that you have to give up. So in an organic lawn, we do not call weeds weeds. And it's not, it's not a marketing thing. It's, we call it plant diversity. Plants grow in guilds because they get along with each other. They can pick fair fights with each other. The dandelion was given a very, very bad name back when Scott's came out with their four-step program. I don't know if you remember, but some people may remember the old, old, probably 1960s TV commercial where they zoomed in on a dandelion and then they made it into a cartoon creature that looked like a great big lion that was going to bite your kid. So this dandelion grew to this enormous size and became a lion's mouth. And they said, all you have to do is remember that. a couple of little sprays with the 2,4-D. They didn't tell you that it was the number one breast cancer causing agent in the world and that it was only a couple of chemicals off from, and I'm no chemist, so, but I, this is, I've been told by chemists, it's only a couple of elements off from 245T, which is Agent Orange. So right. 24D and 245T are in the same chemical family and very, very toxic stuff. Mm -hmm. That you do have to give up. You do have to give up the monocultural, perfect American lawn and take on the new American lawn. You know, I've not put, sprayed anything on mine for a while, so I have a hodgepodge of stuff, you know, and I wonder, you know, my next door neighbors and the neighbors across the street all have perfect lawns and some will say, oh, it's, it's the company that rhymes with blue team that claims that they, you know, they're organic, you know, and I don't believe them because it's this perfect lawn and I'm looking at mine and I've got you know, crabgrass and I've got, I'm using clover to take care of certain spots, you know, and I, and I find strawberries now. I mean, literally miniature strawberries and there are green plants in there also. So, I mean, I shouldn't worry about that, you're telling me. Well, it depends on your aesthetic. Again, if you're a golfer and you're used to clean fairways and greens and tees, um, you come home to a lawn with lots of diversity in it. It's a different aesthetic. Organic abhors a vacuum like nature does. So one, one species or even three species like ryegrass, bluegrass, and fescue mixed, if that's all you want in your lawn, that you can do that organically, but it is a vacuum that constantly needs maintaining. Mm -hmm. So if you allow plant diversity to come in, that little strawberry that you're talking about is probably the yellow flowering one. And it's not a strawberry. It's called Indian strawberry or Duchenacea indica. Yeah. Um, that likes, it's an invasive plant actually, and it likes wet, shady, and compacted soils. So just alleviating those problems can alleviate that problem. Okay. It survives under the mower blade. That's, that's interesting. What you have is a freedom lawn. And <laughs> that survives under the mower blade is considered a freedom lawn. And I bet you, if you raised your mower to three to three and a half inches, you'd have a lot less crabgrass. I think I'm at two or two and a half somewhere. Oh, yeah, around. that's way too short, Kevin. Too short. Bring oh, yeah. it up. Okay. So again, if you think of the grass blade as the solar panel of the plant, the larger the solar panel to the sun, the more mm -hmm. photosynthesis, the more sugars can be created. And the more, uh, the deeper the root system, the more resilient the plant, 
The deeper the root system, the more it can mine for minerals, nutrients, and water. And also, if it's making photosynthesis and pumping extra carbon down through its roots, it has a symbiotic relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. So a, a part of the soil microflora is a group of fungi, fun, fungi that attach to the grass roots and help to feed it and protect it. And fungi cannot make chlorophyll. So the extra chlorophyll that the grass makes feeds the fungi and the fungi feed phosphorus, water and protected chemicals to the grass plant. So it's a beautiful symbiosis. So raise the blades and you can get rid of a lot of problems. Yes, just by cutting your grass high, making sure your pH is correct, making sure that your biology, the soil biology, the, it's called the soil food web. It's also affectionately known as the poop loop because uh, there's all kinds of critters eating each other and pooping that out. Then something else eats that, poops that out, and that becomes plant available food. So um, if, you're, if you have a healthy soil and you've imbibed enough of the right microflora into the soil or biology, and your chemistry is not totally screwed up, like your soil pH, if it's not too acid or too alkaline, um, then the soil chugs along on its own. And the soil food web creates nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, everything that it needs, along with the soil microflora. So you can't do one without the other. So what do you do about grass seed? You know, everybody in the spring feeds grass and you see them spreading lime and things like that. You know, what, what's your thoughts on grass seed? You, you overseed, underseed, or you don't use seed? No. What do you... So grass seed is like infusing youth into a middle to older age stand. And that's really good. So the lawn seed I recommend is a high fescue blend. So fescue, F-E-S-C-U-E. I'm writing it down. That name is Festuca. And there's three or four different kinds of fescues. Um, there's hard fescues, there's chewing fescues, there's red fescues, and there's tall fescues. Um, the tall fescues have now been hybridized to be uh, a rival to bluegrass lawns. They need one-tenth the fertilizer of a bluegrass lawn and less than one half the water. Plus insects are not as attracted to fescues as they are the bluegrasses and the ryegrasses. To me, bluegrass is the spoiled brat plant of the plant kingdom. I mean, I don't know of another plant that needs more care, love and applications than bluegrass. Hmm. It's come a long way and made them darker genetically without adding a lot of extra fertilizer, but they still need four to five pounds per thousand square feet of nitrogen per year, where a good thick fescue lawn only needs a half a pound. And as you're doing, if you mix some clover in with that, 5% by weight, that's all, Dutch white clover. The clover is a, a legume which absorbs nitrogen out of the atmosphere, stores it in these nitrogen fixing nodules on the roots under, under the soil, and then a rhizobial bacteria is attracted to those nodules and they digest the nitrogen and turn it into plant available form. And that feeds your lawn. So oh. a high fescue lawn over time with a little bit of clover, you do not have to fertilize your lawn ever. Wow. I'm glad. I noticed it's being successful and, and I like what it looks like yep. too. 
So overseeding is really important. Uh, we do it in the fall, late August or September is about the best time because weeds are not actively growing then. Um, all the grass species that we grow here, rye, fescues, bluegrasses are all cool season grasses. So they grow best in the spring and the fall. If you, if you open up your soil and sow seed in the springtime, you're introducing the perfect conditions for weeds to grow along with that grass. So don't do that. <laughs> the weeds are tougher. Mm -hmm. so they'll win. So always a fall overseeding is great. Using a, sl a slice seeding machine is a really good way to do it. You can rent it at any hardware store. Laying sod at that time of the year, if you have to go the sod route, which I don't recommend, but that's the best time to do that. And you also asked about liming. Yep. So liming is a tricky thing in the Northeast. Um, lots of soil in the Northeast has lots of magnesium in it. And if you go and buy lime at most uh, retail outlets, like a Home Depot or something like that, or what I call Home Desperate, um, you'll get uh, dolomitic lime because that's the lime that's mined very close. Matter of fact, it's lined right up. It's mined right up the road from me here <clears throat> in Canaan. So uh, dolomitic lime contains both calcium and magnesium. And if your magnesium is adequate or high already in your soil and you add dolomitic lime, you're going to apply an excessive amount of magnesium, which is going to screw up your soil chemistry. So there is another lime called calcitic lime, which is not mined around here, that contains only calcium and some other trace elements, but mostly calcium and no magnesium. I like calcium for my tomatoes, so. <laughs> yes, yes, the uh, keep the skins yep. splitting. Yep, a soil test. So organic is based on the soil. And it's like going to a doctor and having the doctor do blood work. Okay. He sends the blood work out and gets the report back. He does not know what's going on inside your body. It's the same thing with soil. So there's two kinds of soil tests. One's a standard soil test which tests the chemistry of the soil. So nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, trace elements, percent organic matter, cation exchange capacity. There's a bunch of things that you can get from a standard test. Um, then there's the biological test or a bioassay test, which tests for only the living or previously living component in your soil, which is usually like 0.5% of your soil. But without it, organic doesn't work. So what that does is it will tell you your percentage of fungi to bacteria, your percentage of bacteria to fungi, the different uh, species of both that are available in your soil, what is dormant, what is active, and also your, um, your uh, decomposers. So all of the protozoa, the ciliates, the amoeba, the paramecians, all of those soil creatures that uh, work the soil food web, that make the soil food web go, is all tested and shown on a soil bioassay test. You need so, a very sophisticated microscope and a very sophisticated person looking into the microscope to give you accurate soil bioassay feedback. So that is a more expensive test. And I try to do them once every five years on properties, unless the property is problematic, then I'll do one every year. A full soil bioassay will run about $240, where a full 
standard soil test with organic matter will run around $30. That's more reasonable for most people, I guess. I mean, like I'm just using my neighbor as an example. They're, they're, they're using landscapers, you know, and they're just willy nilly. I mean, you don't know what one's doing from the next. And that's why I fired mine. And I do my stuff because, I, first of all, they never did what I wanted. I didn't trust them. I thought they were, I told them not to do this, not to lay down this or that. And they, I know they were because I could tell from the results, you know, everything all of a sudden is turning green, you know, because they're laying down nitrogen you know? mm-hmm. just to make the owner happy. So what do you do with, with that situation? And, and I guess coupled with that is... Are you seeing that there is a trend toward what we're talking about changing and and getting away from the chemicals, or is it still a real problem? It's still a real problem, but there is a big trend. It's very, very trendy now to be organic, to have an organic lawn. The problem with that is I just said it, an organic lawn. What about the rest of the property? Right. So organic is holistic. It, it takes into account the trees, the shrubs any water bodies on your property. Um, And it's a way of life. It's a a complete paradigm shift or mindset shift going from dominating nature to living with it and learning how to work within it, uh, within its boundaries. So um, there is this huge call right now. I mean, it is hot. Organic land care is very hot. And another form of organic land care is reducing lawns by using wildflower meadows is really hot right now. That happens to be my number one thing that I love to do the most. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of calls for wildflower meadows. And with that, you add diversity and uh, habitat quality to your property. Whereas a lawn is a green desert. You can go out on your lawn and unless you've got some clover, you're not going to see any uh, native insects and no pollinators at all. Right. That's what I've been doing is encroaching on the lawn. I mean, like carving out and making the flower garden larger. Still have to have some lawn, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm just moving it a big semicircle out and getting rid of some lawn (laughs) and using more flowers. And and we love flowers. We grow all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, I may be unusual, but that's one solution for people that are listening Mm -hmm. that I think is a good one. You know, just slowly but surely push the lawn away. Lawn is not the enemy. What the enemy is, is the ego. These (laughs) great big lawns or even small lawns that are intensively maintained with chemicals. So lawn is is necessary. It's a wonderful ground cover where you want to play or where you want to divide garden beds. There's almost nothing that's as pleasing um, as lawn where it's properly sited, properly cared for, properly sized. Lawn is great, but the default thinking that we're trying to overcome is I have land, therefore I must have lawn. And that is not true. We can have meadows, we can have shrub borders, we can have woodlands, and they could be highly ornamental. They do not have to be these ugly patches that look like somebody doesn't care about them. They can be very stylized. So go back to remember I mentioned, I said the guy that does the landscaping, they're really good at schmoozing their customers and they say, I can keep your lawns looking nice. And we come once a week during the season and we do everything you need, but they're not educated about it. And they're using chemicals and everything. They're the young Mike Nado, and they're, they're just going crazy with it. And are, are those guys changing? Are you getting, are, do you teach those people how to change over? Are they interested in changing over? 
Wonderful segue, Kevin. <laughs> <clears throat> so, you know, I teach the course, um, the NOFA Organic Land Care course. Mm-hmm. So um, we put that together in 1999 to 2001 as we were writing the standards back in those days, the organic land care standards. We were actually creating the curriculum for the course. <clears throat> so right after we got done with the standards, we went into uh, creating the uh, five-day organic land care course. And now it's it's down to four days. We found that five days was just too much for people that always spend their lives outside to spend inside five days in a row. It was just killing them. So we reduced some of the content and uh, reduced it down to four days. But I've been teaching it since 2001. And it's one of my re- most rewarding things that I do in my life is to see the light bulbs go on. In some <laughs> you some, got to them. Some of these mow, blow, snow, spray, and go guys. Right. Go, oh, wow. My client's been asking me for that. I have no idea how to do it. You guys do. I can change my business and make money in another way because money is not evil unless you use it evil. Right. Um, and brag on it. <laughs> education is huge. And that is something that we haven't really broken into fully yet. There's 4,000 organic, credited organic land care professionals that have been through our course since 2001. But they're far flung. They're all over the United States and they're in Canada. We should have 400,000. Right. And not 4,000. So we are trying. Uh, NOFA is a... Uh, very, very grassroots, very, very close to the ledger kind of nonprofit organization and doesn't have uh, unexhaustible funds to market and to present these courses. So we're doing the best we can. But something like this, Kevin, what you are doing right now is a great way to spread the word. I'm here to say that what I do for a living and the lifestyle and the work style that I've uh, grown accustomed to is definitely not rocket science. Anybody can do it to change your mindset. It's very important. And then go after it with a vengeance like you did um, your lawnmowers and your blowers. So it seems to me that the homeowner is more reachable. Am I right? I mean, that they're, they're, they're probably embracing this quicker, maybe because they have kids or they had a dog who got canine cancer or something like that, you know, <laughs> or are they just reading about it and going, Oh, I didn't know this monocrop has so many chemicals on it, more than anything else on the planet. And so now they're coming around. Am I right? So it's a two-pronged approach. One is the consumer, which I hate that term. Mm -hmm. Don't call me a consumer. I am not a consumer. That A vacuum cleaner is a consumer. Um, (laughs) But it's the person that is looking for the service. And then it's the person that provides the service. The people that are looking for the service happen to be more educated. And I don't mean smarter. I mean, they read more about the truth that's coming out about these chemicals. They hear the pro and the con. They hear the Monsanto line that, you know, you can drink Roundup. And they're going, hmm. And they they read other things that say Roundup is really not as benevolent as they said. As a matter of fact, it's far from it. That it can be causing cancer. It gets in the groundwater, all kinds of other things. So they're they're aware that there's a a flip side to the story that they've been told. And generally the homeowner or the uh, the landscape client 
is the one that's asking the landscaper for organic land care or something less toxic. They might not even know the term organic land care, but they are asking for something less toxic. And like you, you were asking your landscaper for something less toxic, but he was still putting the stuff down because he doesn't know how to do the other one. That's correct. So that's where the education comes in. And then after the four-day course, there are all these expanded, what we call professional level uh, workshops. So on pruning, on soil health, on looking at soil under a microscope, NOFA does a lot of this. So landscapers love this. You want to see a healthy soil? Bring some of your soil in from your best client's property that you use chemicals on, and then bring in another soil sample from the edge where no chemicals were applied, and look at them both under the microscope. There's a huge difference in diversity. You remind me of Ray Archuleta out west. You know, he does that to the farmers all the time, and he just you know because they're show me kind of guys, right? Mm -hmm. And if you show them, they're and and you can save money then they're they're all aboard and a lot of landscapers are no different they're the same way yeah you're approaching it the same way as he does you know it's i think it's a really great way to to finally get to somebody let's go back to why you wrote the organic standards so the reason why we wrote the standards was we found that there were more people uh becoming sick um there's really good evidence that a lot of a lot more people were becoming sick on their landscapes rather than eating tainted food and there was no legal definition of what organic land care was. So rather than go the federal route, we got a bunch of people together, a bunch of landscapers and a bunch of uh, farmers who helped to write the organic land care standards for farming. And we transposed that information to write the standards so that the homeowner would have something in their hands that they could show their landscaper and know that they were getting real organic land care. Because if you just asked a landscaper, I want you to go organic, how would you know if they are or not? Also, the landscaper would not know if they're going organic truly, unless they had some kind of guidelines. So the uh, standards we wrote uh, supposedly were the first in the country. That wasn't the reason why we wrote them. The reason why was we wanted to protect the client the landscapers themselves who are ignorant to how toxic some of the stuff that we're using and the environment at large. So that's why we wrote the standards. I'm speaking today with Michael Nadeau, who is a co-founder of Connecticut NOFA's Organic Land Care Program and has an organic land care consulting business. And we're talking all kinds of organic landscapes. So I want to talk to you now about some of the stuff you're doing right now. You told me when we met at Connecticut NOFA that you're working on a really big project. And I'm really interested in these kind of things that I guess they're akin to rewilding. Am I right? That you're yes. working on people's properties to, to improve them for nature just for itself. For the um, aesthetic quality as well as the habitat quality. And when I say habitat, I don't mean for deer alone, but you know they're included too. But I'm thinking of pollinators and birds mostly. Um, we're in a crisis situation right now with rapid and massive declines of native insects and birds. And one of the major reasons why is synthetic pesticide application and habitat loss. And the, our backyards are absolutely the best way to counteract that by planting native plants, properly chosen native plants, 
planted in the right location and cared for until they're established, you're automatically planting habitat because the native insects and the birds that frequent here have developed over the millennia to our native plants. So if you plant native plants, you're going to attract uh, insects and birds. So it's very, very important to make sure that we rewild. And that, that term, you know, it's catchy, but what does wild really mean? You know, that's not something I want in my landscape, really. Uh, there could be wild areas, but rewilding to me means thinking ecologically and designing a landscape that can provide both aesthetic and usefulness, uh, aesthetic qualities and usefulness for the person that owns the land and is paying for the care. And also to realize that we share our land with a lot more than just human beings and our pets. But there's a whole host of other things that we absolutely need because if you like to eat, we need pollinators and pollinators are in very, very short demand. Look at the honeybee alone, which is not native. Um, they're in um, massive decline, mostly due to synthetic insecticides. Mm -hmm. So you have this big project, the homeowner, is it a home on the property or just some property? And with that, what did they ask you to do? And what did you decide to tell them they should do? Okay. So there are several large projects that I'm working on. And when I say large, this one that I just came back from, I'm going to leave it all very nameless for now. That's fine. Uh, I don't need the names. I want right. to know what you're doing. <laughs> so it's 500,000 square feet of highly manicured turf, watered, fertilized, pesticided, and the quality of the turf, in my opinion, is pretty poor, even with all those inputs. So what we're doing is I'm looking at the areas that can be transitioned from lawn to other native plantings, such as wildflower meadows, such as rain gardens, such as woodland edge, such as food crops like blueberries, to take the place of the lawn without reducing the lawn to the point where they can't use it for what they want it for. So where lawn belongs on this property, I'm all for it. Um, however, we are going to be changing the management of these lawn areas quite considerably. I met with a team of 11 people, both crew members that, that work full-time on this property and contractors that provide services for this property. And most of them are on board. There are a couple of people that are very skeptical and are I feel a little threatened by having what they keep near and dear to their heart being changed. So I didn't want to rub anybody's noses in anything. So I didn't say, you know, if you're doing everything correctly, why does the lawn look the way it does? And why is it so high maintenance? But what I did say to them is that a lot of what they were discussing was chemical. They were applying, they switched from a bag of synthetic fertilizer to a bag of organic fertilizer, and they call that an organic program. They're doing a lot of aeration, but they can only get down so deep. And then once you get below that aeration level, there's a hard pan. So the water can percolate and then hit a perched water table where roots touch that and die because it's anaerobic. And as I mentioned before, anaerobic conditions kill roots. So there's major problems. And the way around that is twofold. One is mechanical decompaction, which you would use a backhoe and actually dig up the compacted layer, loosen it and reposition the topsoil on top. 
that's pretty harsh conditions. Expensive, okay. I would imagine. <laughs> the other one is to use biology, Kevin. Right. So the soil food web breaks up compaction little by slowly. The big problem with people that have large properties and, dare I say, lots and lots of money is they want the landscape linoleum to be rolled right out. Right. I'm away for these three months. I want to come back and I want everything perfect. And fast food. <laughs> so the, the thing about organic is it's a process and not an event. The education to the client is so, so important. You have to be patient. Soil organisms will break up compaction, but it, they, they take their own time doing it. And if you try to push them, like I said before, you will short circuit the natural process. What is the length of time generally? For a highly pesticided damaged lawn, it's probably a three-year process. Wow. And the first year would be a, um, a bridge. Um, it's called a transition program, which uses bridge products. So let me explain to you how organic fertilizer works. If you apply organic fertilizer, the soil organisms eat that. So it's feather meal, it's rock phosphate, it's all kinds of either rock particles or natural ingredients from animals. So the feather meal, let's take, gets eaten, which contains lots and lots of protein, which gets transferred into nitrogen. So you need the soil food web in order to break down organic fertilizer. If you have a soil that's dead or nearly dead of biology, you might as well be applying that really good organic fertilizer on your driveway. You're not going to get any result from it at all. So these bridge products will take some synthetic and mix it with organic to keep your lawn alive so it doesn't crash, but slowly weans off the synthetic, which is killing the biology and aiding and abetting the organic material that goes into your soil, which will then help to build up a, so a healthy soil food web. The other two things, one that you wanted to talk about is compost applications. So immediately after core aerating or just before core aerating, a top dress of one quarter to one half inch of really good processed, you know, finished compost is a wonderful additive to your soil. Because if you think of compost as a luxury condominium for the soil food web, then you get the concept. Soil food web organisms need a place to live. Compost is full of organic matter, which is full of little homes, if you will, or um, cation exchange capacity sites, which gets into soil science. I'll keep it simple. Compost can be populated by soil food web critters. And also compost tea, which is a liquid that is extracted from compost and then applied in a liquid form on your lawn or in your planting beds and done at the right time of the day and the brewing process done properly with particular additives added during the brew cycle at different times. I know I'm being very vague. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about compost tea in a minute, but you can add billions and trillions of organisms to your soil. And if you have the attraction sites or the luxury condo for those critters to live in, then you're adding incredible amount of life and you can tweak the kind of life that you add to the soil by what constituent materials your compost is made of that you use to make the compost tea. Mm -hmm. So if you want um, 
grass and most annuals like a bacterial, slightly bacterial dominated soil, whereas trees and forests like a fungal dominated soil. So if you brew a compost tea that uses a lot of straw, and if you add simple sugars like a molasses towards the end of the brew cycle, um, it will proliferate your bacteria like crazy. And bacteria is not harmful. There's very few that are harmful, um, but the soil food web is full of bacteria that are absolutely essential. And you take that tea and you apply it on your lawn um, where it can drink into the soil and the soil food web just assimilates them. Eat some of them like ice cream because you're adding uh, a little bit of carbon. But what you're really doing is you're adding, you're infusing the right soil biology to grow a healthy lawn without all the chemicals. So this has to be the guys that are doing this for most homeowners. Most homeowners are not going to do this. You're going to need somebody right. who embraces that <laughs> as a landscaper to do that. Well, we're, we're uh, setting up more and more compost tea brewing uh, sites on homeowners' properties. And they're oh. really getting into it. So you do worm composting. I mean, this I is a, a natural extension from that. Yeah. Um, you know what else? I cheat. I'm um, maybe because I'm busy or I'm lazy, but I use the bugs in a jug. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm using the beneficial bacteria that some of the companies sell. I, yep. I've had great success with it. I have to say. Yep. I've been using azomite too, which is the mineral yep. du jour lately, and and I, I find, like I can, yeah, I cannot believe the results I'm getting with using azomite and the quantum growth that I use. Which bugs and jugs. Yeah, bugs in the jugs. So one thing to remember about bugs and jugs, um, it's commercially prepared yep. uh, from organisms that can be uh, manufactured in a laboratory kind of condition mm -hmm. and then can have a shelf life of up to a year. So all you're going to get is the thugs. You're going to get all the tough guys. All the diminutive ones that make up the complete soil food web, you will not get. What I found under the microscope that can happen is if you apply lots and lots of bugs on uh, in jugs only mm -hmm. over and over again, you dominate your soil food web with these thugs and you kick out the other ones. That's so good it's to know. really, really important to remember that um, ma material taken from your own site, like a handful of the duff soil just underneath the leaves added to your compost, um, into your compost tea recipe, can breed billions and billions of the organisms that are indigenous to your land, which is really important. I wanna finish up here and talk a little bit about um, current events, and that is the, the, the changing climate that's going on, the, the warming that we're experiencing. I mean, how do you see it as affecting what you're doing in landscaping and farming in general and, you know, what we have to do to prepare for some bigger changes, I think, but maybe you don't think so. Oh, I sure do. Yes. Um, so there's this thing called species drift, which is all the buzzword now around the, uh, the um, scientific community um, that has to do with land care and agriculture. So what's happening is species from New Jersey and um, the mid-Atlantic states are now being able to be grown in Connecticut. And those are moving north too. So in my thinking of being strictly native plants that are indigenous to my landscapes here in, in uh, the northeast, uh, northwest part of Connecticut, 
I uh, have now been infusing um, plants from uh, different zones, different echo zones, warmer echo zones, um, to make sure that I have these plants in place when the climate uh, changes happen, uh, which occur here, which is already occurring. So to clarify, where I used to use only regionally native plants, I'm now using uh, native plants from a larger region, uh, several different echo regions. We're in echo region 59. So there are some Southern regions and I believe they are the more south you go, the higher the number is. So echo region 60, 61, 62. Um, I'm using some of those plants now in my meadows, in my rain gardens, um, also as shrubs and trees that normally wouldn't grow here are now capable to grow here. One way to build resilience into your landscape. Another thing is to try to wean yourself off of any outside inputs because you mentioned azomite. I use azomite too, um, but it's a mined product that's mined elsewhere and then transported here. So there's a lot of embodied energy that goes into a bag of azomite. If you can grow your soil food web and have your, your chemistry in your soil uh, balanced, you'll never need azomite. So that's a really good way to plan for the future and to minimize our carbon footprint and also to minimize uh, global warming, or as Bill would say it, global weirding. I use that term myself, because mm -hmm. that's what's happening. You know, people say, oh, it's, you know, it's this weather, you know, and no, I said, no. It's, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird weather. Oh, look, ask the people in Mississippi. That's some serious global weirding there, man, yes. California besides, you know, and yes. sargassum coming across the uh, the the gulf there is you know i think results of all the stuff washing down the mississippi and growing more and more seaweed than it ever expected to grow you yeah. know so and there's dead zones in the gulf that are huge, huge nothing yeah. lives there yeah so in that regard what do you what do you want to say to people about all this stuff i mean what are you thinking about thinking about anything that comes off your property as gold nothing should leave your land so all the green material can be returned in compost all your leaves can be shredded and used as mulch or added to your compost pile, um, saving carbon, uh, saving the, uh, the fuel to haul it away, to blow it. Um, I um, am a great proponent of incorporating leaves into the lawn by shredding them, especially under trees. When the leaves come down in earnest and it's just too many leaves, I then will... Um, either rake them or blow them using an electric blower into windrows and then mulch them with a mulching mower. And then I store them on site under clear plastic that's pretty airtight. And clear plastic will not cause the uh, leaves to heat up over the winter on sunny days. You remove that plastic in the springtime and you have a nice shredded mulch to use in your planting beds come in and blow all the leaves away and i kept telling them i want some leaves under the bushes i want leaves over there under the pines you know please leave them alone you know and it, inevitably they they didn't listen to me you know so either he didn't listen or it didn't equate you know he just i'm cleaning leaves and all your leaves must go this looks better this looks better mm -hmm. or they'll pull things out that i was expecting to come back up again but he, he pulled them out because they were deadheaded you know <laughs> it's like
it's, it's wild, you know. So what, what what do you recommend to a homeowner who's thinking about doing this and listens to what you're saying? What's the first step that they should do to try to change change their ways? Okay, if they're going to do it themselves, I would say educate. And there are some great books that um, NOFA has published. One is the Organic Lawn Care Turf book, Lawn and Turf uh, Maintenance book. The other one is the Organic Land Care Standards. It's free. It's downloadable on the website, www.organiclandcare.net. And just uh, type in uh, Organic Land Care Standards, and you can download them for free. The other thing would be to find a genuine practitioner. Find somebody that's been through the uh, organic land care program that has got AOLCP uh, certification, which stands for uh, Accredited Organic Land Care Professional. And the way to find that is on the same website, organiclandcare.net. You can put in your zip code and it'll give you a whole list of uh, landscapers that have been through our course. And that's a great way to start. Yeah. And to use the standards, as your knowledge for asking questions to your landscaper. Ask them, so what do you apply for crabgrass? How, how high do you mow? You have it right in your hands. You have, you have the knowledge and the power of that knowledge to ask the correct questions and to know who is a genuine practitioner. Because just because they've been through our course doesn't mean that they practice it. Right, they're sticking to the rules, right? At least trying, you know? At least mm -hmm. trying because taking a four-day course and actually doing it out in practice is very, very different. I guess you could get frustrated when it's not working quickly, or and the old homeowner could get impatient as well. You know, because yes. hey, the place is looking like hell. You know, what's going on here? You know, how, how long do I have to wait for this? Right, that's the, probably mm -hmm. the kind of feedback you get. If you don't know how to transition a, a landscape from conventional to organic, um, it could look pretty horrible. Mm -hmm. So it's always good to mentor with somebody who knows the process, hire a consultant, you know, like myself, but not touting. I've got plenty of work. I'm not asking for any of that. But there's uh, some really good uh, consultants out there that can guide you through. You know, and, and, and another plug I'll give for one of the guests that comes here, and you know her very well, Edwina Van Gaal's oh, uh, yeah. Perfect Earth Project has a great little booklet that has questions that you can ask, you know, what what to figure out, you know, what you're doing and what they're doing by, you know, she gives you a whole list in there. I think that's a good little booklet if you, the Perfect Earth Project, just as a, another aside. Well, Michael Nadeau, thank you for so much for showing up and and being here with me today. I've learned a lot today. You know, I always ask questions about things that I, I'm struggling with myself. And I think it, it, we answered a few of those today. So thanks for being here. Kevin, thanks for what you do and for helping to spread uh, the organic word. So, I mean, you're helping tremendously. Thank you for giving important. me a sounding board. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate it. I'd like to have you back again sometime. Wonderful. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 